If I haven't met you yet, my name is Adam and I'm really, really glad that you're with us today. We're going to be spending the next 30 minutes or so just reading and exploring God's Word and what a blessing, what a a privilege that is to come in, to sit, to breathe and to hear from God. And lately, I've been thinking a lot about leadership. Now, I think partly it's because of the, the role that I've uh, stepped into this year, taking over from John as a lead pastor of this church. But I also think it's because of what we've seen around us and what we've seen in the news. So many of the things that have made headlines in the last few months have been related to leadership. For example, this man on the screen is Craig Meller. Now, he was CEO of one of the large financial institutions in our country until just recently, when the Royal Commission into the banking industry revealed that his company had been involved in some dishonest practices. And because it happened on his watch, he took responsibility and he resigned. Then there is, of course, the Australian government. Now, I'm sure that you are well aware we have had seven prime ministers in the last ten years. Now, in the 12 years prior to that, we had one prime minister. It's almost like leadership spills have become a bit of a national sport these days. Now, I'm not having a go at any party in particular. They've both done it. But this is, at its essence, a failure of leadership. This man is Tim Payne. He is the current captain of the Australian cricket team. Some would say that this is the second most important job in Australia. (laughs) Others might say it's the first, number one most important job in the country. Now, Tim Payne could barely make the Tasmanian team 12 months ago. Now, following the recent cheating scandal in South Africa, which involved the captain, the vice-captain, and cost the coach his job, He has been thrust into the leadership of the Australian cricket team. And he's seeking to make some changes. He gets the team to shake hands with the other team now before the match. He even has apparently introduced a no-sledging rule. Though I'm not so sure about how long that will last. So many of the things that we've seen in the news have been related to leadership to leaders either taking responsibility and doing their job as best they can or leaders failing to take responsibility and neglecting to do their job. Now the reason I tell you all of this is because in the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel, which is the book that we're diving into for the next few weeks in our sermon series called Rise of the Kings, we see that the leadership of Israel, the people of God, had become corrupt and compromised. The priests, those who were supposed to lead the people of God in worship of God, were deeply corrupt and did not even know God. Now last week, Nathaniel kicked off the series by introducing uh, us to a, a woman named Hannah. Hannah was married to a man named Elkanah, but she was barren. And so she cried out to God for a child, and God gave her a son named Samuel. And when he was three years old, Hannah sent Samuel to serve at the temple under Eli, the high priest. This week, as we pick the story up, the focus shifts from Hannah to Samuel and to Eli. 
The story shifts to what was going on at the temple. And to be frank, it wasn't pretty. In fact, the name of uh, the sermon for today is The Good, the Bad and the Ugly. It's not a Clint Eastwood movie, um, but it's The Good, the Bad and the Ugly. And I'd like to frame the story around these three words. Because what we're going to see this morning is the ugly corruption of Eli's sons. The bad response of Eli and then the good God who gives good things. So let's look first at the ugly corruption of Eli's sons. Now we were introduced to Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, last week in in verse 3 of chapter 1. But all we were told is that they were priests serving at the temple under their dad, their father, Eli. This week we learn a little bit more about them. Look at what we read in verse 12. Eli's sons were scoundrels. Now if you've ever been called a scoundrel... That's not complimentary. Other translations uh, translate this word, this phrase, wicked men, or or even worthless men. Eli's sons were scoundrels, they were wicked, they were worthless, for they had no regard for the Lord. Now, what have these two boys been up to that had earned them this title of scoundrel? Well, the answer is that as priests, Hophni and Phinehas were supposed to help people worship God by assisting them in offering sacrifices to God at the temple to to make payment for their sin. You see, priests were were entitled to receive certain portions of the sacrifices that people would bring to the temple. But Hophni and Phinehas were taking advantage of their position. It seems that they preferred different cuts to the ones that they were receiving. It seems like they thought they weren't receiving enough because what they would do is they would send servants around the temple with a big three-pronged fork. And these servants would go up to the pots where where people were worshipping and offering their sacrifice. They would plunge the fork into the pot and whatever came up out of the pot, they would claim as their own. They would even take the fat parts of the sacrifice, which was solely reserved for God. And if the people protested, if the worshippers protested at this treatment, they were threatened with violence. These guys were thugs and they were abusing their position and privilege. In fact, this is what we read about them in verse 17. This sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. Yet this was not even the end of it. There was even more that was rotten at the temple. Look at verse 22. Now Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Hophni and Phinehas had turned the temple into a brothel. Now my question is, how did it get to this? How did these servants of God become so dishonouring to God? So flagrantly disobey God? Well the answer is back in the second half of verse 12. Where we were told that they had no regard for the Lord. 
This literally means they did not know the Lord. They had no personal knowledge of God, no relationship with God, no fear of God, no awe of God, no reverence for God. Sure, they liked their position at the temple and all that it could kind of get them, but they did not care about God and they did not care about God's people. And really, it leads, forces us to ask the question, do we know God? Are we going deeper with God? Are we drawing closer to God? It's a tragedy to my mind that people who came to the temple seeking God, wanting to worship God, found only indifference and even hostility to God. And you know, the New Testament describes Christians as priests and it describes the church as a temple. In other words, we are called by God to know him and to make him known in the world. That's our calling. That's our mission. And I long for BPCC to be a place where people are drawing closer to God and going deeper with God. Where people who are far from God can come in among us and look around and interact with us and say, well, they they don't have it all worked out, but they know God. That much is obvious. I mean, we often hear the stories of grace, these testimonies that we share of people in our midst. And what we often hear is people who say, I walked through those doors and I felt the peace of God. I was welcomed. I was known. I was loved. And I long for us to be a place where people can come and they can know God and they can join us in making God known in the world. Now sadly, this was not the case for the temple with Hophni and Phinehas running around. But eventually, word of their wickedness, word of their corruption gets back to their dad and their boss, Eli. And we see his response, his bad response, in verses 23 to 25. Look at what we read. He comes to his sons and he says to them, Why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, the report I hear spreading among the Lord's people is not good. If one person sins against another, God may mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. Now, Eli rebukes his sons, which is good, but he doesn't go far enough. He allows his sons to continue serving as priests in the temple. With all that he knew about them, he allows them to continue to serve God and serve God's people. And by failing to take definitive action, Eli is honouring his sons over and above his God. And this bad response of Eli leads to the rejection of Eli's house and his line. In verse 27, a prophet, a man of God, comes to Eli with the announcement that not only will his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, die on the same day in the near future, but his entire line 
will eventually die out. And the privilege of the priesthood will be removed from him and from his line. Now, if you remember last week in Hannah's prayer, which, as we heard, is like the table of contents to the book of 1 Samuel. Do you remember Hannah prayed, For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The deeds of Eli's house have been weighed and found wanting. And it leaves us with the question, well, what next? I mean, if the priesthood is going to be removed from Eli, then who will replace them? Has God abandoned his people? Now, on the surface, it kind of looks like that. But if you read the story carefully, you'll see that even in the midst of the darkness, even in the midst of the disobedience, God's sovereign hand is at work. Because he is a God who gives good things to his people. You see, throughout the story, there have been these little notes about the boy Samuel, who was also serving at the temple at this time. But unlike Hophni and Phinehas, he was growing in stature before the Lord. Look at what we read about Samuel in verses 18 to 21. But Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod, That's just a a garment that was worn by the priests. Each year his mother, that's Hannah, made him a little robe and took it to him when she went up with her husband, that's Elkanah, to offer the annual sacrifice. Now mums, buying new uniforms for your growing boys is not a new thing, it seems. Here we go. Hannah is still having to do this for, for Samuel as he grows. Eli, we read in verse 20, would bless Elkanah and his wife, saying, may the Lord give you children by this woman to take the place of the one she prayed for and gave to the Lord. That's Samuel. Then they would go home and the Lord was gracious to Hannah. She gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Now this is a little conclusion to the story of Hannah. And what we see here is the kindness and graciousness of God. Because if you remember, Hannah had desperately wanted a child. God gave her a son. Hannah gave that son back to God to serve at the temple. And now God gives Hannah five more children. And what this reveals is the the truth, the principle that you cannot outgive God. There is no sacrifice that you can make for God that will leave you depleted, worse off than you were before. Listen, even if you are given the privilege of losing your life for Jesus, you will not ultimately lose because you will gain God himself. Our God is a God who gives abundantly. But not only does God give children to Hannah, He is also giving a new godly leader to his people. And that's the point of these little notes about Samuel throughout the story. We see another one in verse 26. And the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favour with the Lord and with people. God is providing new godly leadership for his people. But I want you to notice how God is doing this. How God is raising up Samuel. Because if you 
see, if you read the story, you'll see that there's no placards, there's no campaigns, there's no speeches, there's no television ads. God is raising up his leader and it's quiet and understated and through ordinary, everyday faithfulness. You see, I don't think anyone would have looked at little Samuel wandering around the temple and thought, wow, there is the leader that God is raising up for us. God is rescuing us. God hasn't forgotten about us. This is amazing. I don't think anyone would have thought of that as they looked at little Samuel around the temple. And yet this is how God so often works in our lives. We think God is most at work in the powerful, the flashy, the impressive, when God is often, I would say usually at work, in the humble, the small, in the ordinary, everyday faithfulness of his people. In fact, this kind of ordinary, everyday work of God reminds me of a story I once heard about a plane that was doing a, a bombing raid over a German city during World War II. Now, during the raid, this plane was hit by German anti-aircraft shells, and it was hit in its gas tank, but there was no explosion. Now, after the raid, the the next morning, the pilot went to see the crew and he wanted to take one of the shells for himself. He wanted it as a souvenir. He couldn't believe how lucky they were. But the shells had been sent to the armoury to be diffused. But at the armoury, they had discovered that all of the shells that hit the plane were empty, completely empty. There was no explosive charge in them. Except for one, which had a little rolled up note in it that was written in Czech from the Czech Republic. The note said this, this is all we can do for you for now. See, there were Czechs who were forced to work in the munitions plant to further the Nazi war effort. And rather than try and blow up the the factory or or assassinate Hitler, all they did was not put charges in, in some of the shells and the bombs that they were making. It was quiet, it was understated, but it worked salvation all the same. And this is how God is often at work in the world. In a quiet, understated, ordinary way. Think about the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. He lived for 30 years, was born in a tiny rural town in the middle of East, barely travelled and was executed upon a Roman cross at age 33. And yet God was saving the world through his life, death, and resurrection. God is at work in humble, ordinary means in our lives because he's a good God who gives good things to his people. And he not only gives children to Hannah, he not only gives a new godly leader to his people, as chapter 3 opens, we also see that he gives the gift of his word. Look at what we see in verse 1 of chapter 3. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. Now this absence of God's word was a sign of God's judgment. But here, as chapter 3 begins, we see that God is breaking his silence. A new era is dawning with Samuel. In fact, if we look at the end of the chapter, we see what God is doing. Look what we read here at the end of chapter 3. The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up and he let none of Samuel's words 
fall to the ground. They were effective. They reached out to their audience. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh. That's the temple where the, that's where the temple was in Shiloh. And there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. And Samuel's word came to all Israel. We move from a wordless nation at the beginning of chapter 3 to a nation filled with the word of God at the end of chapter 3. And this is so important for us to recognize. When God is at work in the world, it's always through his word. Israel was in a time of crisis. Their leadership was corrupt. Their worship was compromised. So what did God do? He sent his word. He raised up a prophet. When God wants to restore, revive, redeem his people, he sends his word. The word of God is always central to the work of God in the world. And in your life. And this is why the word of God needs to be central in your life. We need to be reading the Bible. We need to be, sit under the preaching of the Bible. We need to speak the truths of the Bible to ourselves and to one another. We need the Word of God. The Word of God needs to be central in our church. And as long as God gives me the privilege of serving here, the Word of God is going to be central to all that we do. We can do lots of good things, and I pray that God will use us to do lots of good things, but they will always be connected to His Word. We will be a church that cherishes the powerful word of God, the gift of God's word. We won't neglect it. Because the word of God is central to the work of God in the world. Now maybe you're thinking, well, yeah, that's good, Adam, but the word of God can't really be rare in our day, can it? I mean, we have unparalleled access to the the Bible, the Word of God. We have it on our phones. We have it probably five copies sitting on our shelf at home. I mean, how can the Word of God be rare in our day? Surely that can't happen. The answer is it's not true. See, the Word of God can become rare in our lives and it can become rare in our churches, not because God has stopped speaking to us, but because we've stopped listening. Think about it this way, and this is a bit gross. But there is a condition where cerumen, more commonly known as earwax, can build up in your ear canal and it can cause a blockage and temporary hearing loss. Now this is often what happens to us when it comes to the Word of God. The Word of God can become rare in our lives when there is something blocking it from us really hearing it and really being changed by it. I don't know, maybe it's apathy. Well, I just don't really care. I don't really care about reading the Bible or coming to church or whatever it is. Obviously, that's not you because you're here today. Maybe it's laziness. I just couldn't be bothered. Maybe it's busyness. I can't find the time. I won't make the time. Maybe it's distraction. I just can't stop scrolling through Facebook or Instagram or can't stop watching Netflix or whatever it is. I don't know, whatever it is. When we hear the word of God, but we're not moved by it, when we have access to the word of God, but absolutely no appetite for it, it might reveal that there's a a blockage in our spiritual ear canal. 
And unless we clear that out by repentance and returning to the word of God, the voice of God in our life will become more distant and and quiet and our spiritual lives will become malnourished. We need the word of God because that is the way in which God works in our lives and in our world. Now, don't get me wrong. This is not easy. This will take time and effort and commitment. I mean, I don't know if you've noticed, but the Bible is a big book and it can be very confusing at times. It can be hard to find your place and know what's going on. But it's God's word to us. And as we devote ourselves to it, as we sit under it and study it, God will be with us and it will be worth it. The word of God is central to the work of God in the world. It's true for us and it was true for Israel. And this is why God is raising up Samuel to be the leader of God's people. Now the way in which God raises up Samuel in verses 2 to 10 is really interesting. I don't know if you've read the story. If I had time I would. But basically, God calls out to Samuel in the middle of the night audibly. He says, Samuel. Now Samuel thinks that Eli is calling out to him. And so he gets up and he runs to Eli and he says, Here I am, Eli. You called me. And Eli's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Go back to bed. You woke me up. Now, this happens three times. Eventually, they realize it is the Lord calling to Samuel. And so when God calls out again and says, Samuel, he replies by saying, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And God speaks his word to Samuel and that begins Samuel's journey of leading God's people. Now the question that most people have when they read this section of scripture is, well, should we expect God to speak to us like that? Should we expect God to speak to us audibly like he did to Samuel? Now I understand the impulse, I understand the question, but I think it's the wrong question. You see, we do not stand in Samuel's position. We're not prophets like Samuel was called to be a prophet. Samuel was called to receive the direct revelation of God's word and then share it with his people. That was the job of a prophet. And that was how God spoke to his people in that day. But that's changed. Look at what we read in Hebrews chapter 1 in the New Testament. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, at many times and in various ways. And if you read the Old Testament, you'll see that that's true. God even used a donkey for crying out loud. Verse 2, But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Jesus is the word of God to us. And we see Jesus in the pages of the Bible. We see the Spirit-inspired promise of his coming in the Old Testament and we see the Spirit-empowered record of his coming, his life, his death, his resurrection and his church in the New Testament. And sometimes we get so hung up on wanting to hear the voice of God audibly that we neglect the Word of God, the voice of God that we already have in Jesus and in the Bible. Now you might say we should imitate Samuel's attitude towards the Bible, towards the Word of God. And I would agree. We should come to the Bible expectantly and eagerly with an attitude of, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. 
God speaks to us through his word, leads and guides us by his spirit. But I still don't think that that's the main thing we can learn from this section of 1 Samuel. See, I think rather than asking how do verses 2 to 10 and Samuel's call apply to us, we should be asking how do verses 2 to 10 reveal our God. And this interaction between God and Samuel in verses 2 to 10 reveals the kindness and gentleness of God. I mean, this was a new step for Samuel. This was a new beginning for God's people. But God is in no apparent hurry. Didn't he give Samuel time to work out what was going on? Three times he runs to Eli before he realises what's going on. And God's not sitting there. (sighs) Would you hurry up and get this, Samuel? I mean, seriously. God doesn't have an exasperated sigh. He's patient and gentle. And this is a glimpse of how God is with us as well. He's patient with us. He's not sitting over you with a stopwatch, saying, you should be a little bit further along by now. He's gentle. Now, none of us are where we want to be, are we? But God sees those steps that we're taking, no matter how small they seem. And he's glad about it. Because he's gentle with us. Because he's a good God who gives good things to his people. And he has given us the greatest gift of all in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's actually a promise of Jesus coming in this passage. In verse 35, when God is issuing his judgment upon the priesthood of Eli, there's this little promise right in the middle of it. Look what God says through the prophet, he says, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and my mind. I will firmly establish his priestly house and they will minister before my anointed one always. God promises to send the leader that we truly need. And this leader won't commit any dishonest practices. He won't be challenged in a leadership spill. He won't lead us into scandal or disgrace. He will lead us to truly know God and truly make God known to us. And of course I'm talking about Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true and faithful priest from God because he fully reveals God to us and he makes God known to us. In fact, listen to these words from Hebrews 7 about Jesus as we close. It says, therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. If you are in Christ, your sin has been paid for once and for all. You are saved completely and utterly and totally. You have freedom from your past, hope for the future and purpose in the present. 
to know God and to make him known. And every single one of us is called to this. Because our God is a good God who gives good things. Join your hearts with me as we pray and enter into a time of reflection before our good God. See, maybe there's some of us here this morning, and Lord, if we're honest to you, we would say that we've drifted from you. There was a time when we, when we knew you, Lord, and we were near to you. But there's a blockage in our spiritual ear canal. And the promise of God's word is that if we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. And you've taken a step today by coming to church. Because you want to know God. And I just want to invite you now to bring that thing before God. To lay your heart open before God. To be honest with him. Say, Lord, I've drifted and I want to draw near. Others of us haven't drifted because, Lord, if we're honest, we'd say, we don't even know you. Lord, in Jesus, we see the lengths to which you have gone to draw near to us. And when he died upon that cross, he paid the penalty for our sin. He died the death that we deserve to die so that we can stand before you free, known, loved, forgiven. So maybe there's some among us this morning who would say, I don't know you, God, but I want to. And we want to take that first step today. And we just want to say to God, God, we have sinned against you. It was my sin that put Jesus upon the cross. But I put my trust that it's been paid for. And through his resurrection, I can receive life eternal, life with you. You just open up your heart, open up the empty hands of faith and receive what God is offering to you today in Jesus. Oh Lord, no matter where we are this morning, whether we've drifted, whether we don't know you, we all want to take a step closer to you this morning so that we can know your love and make your love known in this world for your glory. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Church, let's stand together and respond in song. Lord, I am because of Jesus. Oh, the 